John chapter 2. While some of you are turning to John chapter 2, let's just, on this nice, beautiful, cloudy morning with the showers, let's see how you're doing. And we're going to talk about driving this morning. Driving in vehicles. Let's see how you do. Name something you don't want to see on the road when you're driving down that road. Deer. Okay. Police officers should be no problem if you're just driving normal. Doesn't matter. You get paranoid. <laughs> a detour sign. That's a good one. Debris. Okay. Kids on the road. Yeah, you would hope not. Okay. An accident. Here's what they had. Potholes. Well, you're not driving where. Okay. Stop traffic. Items falling off. Police car using radar. Accident. Animal or deer. Name something you might wear while driving. Sunglasses. Seatbelt. Clothes. Gloves. Somebody answered clothes, and I'm thinking, duh. <laughs> um, shoes. Gloves was there. Eyeglasses, sunglasses, and number one was seatbelt. Here you go. Name something you do to keep awake if you get sleepy while, while driving. You sing. Radio. What's that? Roll down the window. Shake your head. I do more than shake my head. I slap my head. <laughs> and if it doesn't work, I tell Deb to, and she's more than accommodating. So, um, slap yourself. Put your head out the window. Open the windows. Talk to others. Sing loudly. Drink caffeine. Number one? Eat. Eat. Yeah. Don't you munch when you're driving? Yes, no? Uh, I said, driving, driving is a weight gainer for me. Um, what do people do in consideration? What do they take into consideration when buying a new vehicle? Color. Color. Don't, don't care about the price. We care about the color. Yeah, that's true. They do. They do. Gas mileage, anybody think that's a factor anymore? Okay. Price. The, what, the seats. The number of seats. Okay, that's true. Warranties. Warranties. Here's what they had said. Car brand and name. Summer stick. Stereo media systems. The Sitting comfortably. Color and looks. Number it can seat. Safety features. Gas mileage. And number one was the price. Price. Okay. Here we go. Who are the worst drivers and why? <laughs> uh, do you want to set up marital counseling, anybody, right off the bat on this one? Now, we're not looking for personal names, okay? So that, that, don't, don't have to throw out your spouse's name or kids. Impatient drivers, okay? That explains itself. Drunk drivers. What'd you, what'd you say? Stupid or student? Student. Student. Okay. <laughs> Tired drivers. Someone who's texting? Okay. Okay. Here we go. Men who think they are good drivers. <laughs> uh, teens due to inexperience. People who speed or tailgate. Old people who drive way too slow. Anyone want to guess what number one is without getting in trouble? Woman, because. How disrespectful, right? Right, I can't believe anybody would even put that one up there. I just can't believe it. Talking about disrespect, let's go to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. There we go. Here we go. Conversations with Jesus. We want to talk about an episode in Jesus' life where Jesus was told he was extremely disrespectful. And uh, the situation is in John chapter 2. You're familiar with it. We just alluded to it last week just briefly. By the way, you don't have notes uh, by all means, raise your hand. I'll show hand it to you. Uh, this is the very first miracle. It states in John 2 that it is his first miracle. And to get the full understanding, let's do a little bit of background. Anybody remember when it occurred? If it's his first miracle, did it occur early, middle, late in his ministry? Okay, it's very early in his ministry. Do you remember anything that happened before it? Any events that happened be- that you can think that happened before they did, he did the miracle? Okay, think of his very first things when he came out in public. 
His first, his first public exposure or acclamation was, Behold, the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. When did that occur? His baptism. Okay, so what you have, it's early within the first few weeks. It's after his baptism, it's after the temptation, but it's also right after he's starting to gather some of his disciples. And so they're getting together, and we talk about what happens as, in fact, the text even gives you several you know, a time frame that it's just days after his baptism gathering disciples. <clears throat> he had left home a few weeks earlier because of the temptation, because of the, uh, the time that he got baptized and the traveling down that area. There's a several-week gap here. And so after all that completed, third day he returns home. And uh, when he comes to his home region, as you go through the map, he had been up in the Galilee region. That would be that... that uh, light spot towards the top, comes down, gets baptized, goes into the wilderness where there's the temptation, comes back, gathers at least, you know, Peter and Andrew and Nathaniel, and then he heads back up north for the wedding of Cana. The wedding of Cana might have been a reason why he went up north, okay? Because uh, that brings us to the idea of who is there. As you go to John 2 and start reading, who's all there that you know of at the wedding? Okay, his mom's there. Who else is there? The disciples are going to be there. Jesus is going to be there. Any other people there? Obviously, you've got bride and groom. Okay. You've got the servants who are there. Any other inclination? Okay. Not to be silly, but there's, they, they're feeding the people, and the issue at this time is what? They're running out of what? Okay. They're going to have run out of wine, and that means there's other people there. People that we don't know about, okay, that are going to be there. And it has to be a big crowd. The reason we know is they drank all the wine was there, and then they're going to ask and want some more. And the amount of wine that he makes is a pretty substantial amount of wine. And so the question that comes up is, uh, why did he go back? The, the assumption is that this is a family, relative, or friend. And there's two reasons. One, he comes back into the region... Can you think of another reason why? It might be somebody he knows or his family knows. His mom, she's somehow involved in this and she's directing the servants, which gives inclination. She might be doing or in charge of the reception or something, which indicates that there's some type of communication and contact. Now, if you read some commentaries that are very negative about the Bible, they're going to uh, right away, they're going to find some fault in Jesus. The fault they find is he crashed the wedding party. Um, probably not, probably because of what we just said, it's family or relative. The other reason probably not is when you did weddings in Bible days, well, let me explain a little bit about the weddings, how they did them a little bit different than what we do. Back in Bible days, it wasn't at a church. It usually wasn't in a public setting. Usually it was in the father's home or their property uh, that they had. And you would basically, it would, you'd get engaged, and a year later, then the guy comes marching through, dressed up. Sometime during the day, he gathers his bride at her home. And during that time, he's been building his home, preparing the place for his bride. She's been getting ready. And they would come back, typically on a Tuesday was the weddings, because... Tuesday was the only time in creation week that you have a phrase repeated. And God saw all that he created, and it was good. Okay, and so they took that as saying, okay, that's a good day to be married on. And so they would do the Tuesday. They would go back to the family. They usually didn't have clergy involved at all. And the parents were the ones that would uh, have them make whatever promises. They would pronounce the blessings, the prayer, and they would be pronounced, husband and wife, and the ceremony. Then they would have festivities that could last one day, two days, three days is typical. And you would invite people. Now, the people you invite are people that are relatives, and if you're in a village, who else might you invite besides the whole village? Okay, you're going to get your friends. You're going to get any, any um, what, uh, VIP of the village. I don't know what other term to use. You're going you're gonna to get the hoi ploy of the village. You're going to come. And Jesus comes walking back, and Jesus is starting to appear as somebody special for a reason. There's something in the story that tells us that Jesus is probably being recognized as somebody 
extraordinary. Okay, not just that he's invited, something else. What's that? Uh, they don't say that in the story. There is something in the story that indicates he might be perceived as somebody of importance. Who comes with him? He brings disciples. He's got a following, which indicates, ooh, this might be somebody that is starting to you know, reveal himself for what he is. Anyway, so Jesus comes back, and so he, he, besides being a relative, just the idea that he's back and he's, he's starting to become somewhat of a celebrity at this point, and there's another reason why we'll get to it. But here's what happens is the guffaw that happens in Bible, and, and it would be a guffaw today. If you invite people over and you run out of food, that's not a good thing. Okay, if you have a wedding and you run out of food, have you ever been to a wedding reception and they run out of food? It ever happened? Okay, I've, done, I've had, it, had it happen where, you know, been there and they run out of food. That's really embarrassing for the family. It's, you know, and we're not in this culture, you know, because what can we do? Say we do a wedding here and you run out of food and your guest, what can you do? Yeah, you can go to a store, you can do what? Yeah, you got dominoes, you got somebody, you got, a re, you got something to do. Or if you're the one that says, okay, we just won't eat, we'll leave it for others, you can go get something afterwards. But these people, this would be a little bit more cumbersome. And so it's a major crisis, and Mary comes to Jesus, and she says to him, you know, do something about this. In fact, as the story unfolds, uh, the mother of Jesus, verse 2, says they have no wine. She comes to him. And obviously she's implying something. The reason we would say that is Jesus says, Woman, what have I to do with you? Mine hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatsoever he says to you, do it. So she has an expectation. There's no doubt about it. She wants him to do something. Why does she come to Jesus? At this moment, why does she come? What's that? How does she know who he is? Okay, because years before, she's been told he's Messiah. And remember, what's the phrase that keeps on showing up? That Mary, did, was she a forgetful mom about that thing? No, what does the what different verses say? She hid those things in her heart. She pondered those things. So she has an awareness. Any other reason why she might have an expectation? You had mentioned that she may have even rehearsed a lot of these things with him. Yeah, wouldn't you, you know, you were saying, do you think, we were talking last week, do you think Mary told Jesus some of the stories of what happened? I mean, he, he would be informed, but even as a child, okay, and she's pondering these things. Can you think of any other reason why she might expect him to do something? Any other thoughts, Jeremy? If she has some authority, he's the eldest son. Okay, okay. Is there a possibility he has shown himself to be resourceful in the past in caring for the family? Okay. There is something else that's added again that we already mentioned. That he comes back and from her perspective, he's got following already. What does that say to her? His ministry's kicking off and she's looking for it. Plus, there is something else that happened recently. What, think of what happened that was a public situation. He got baptized. And when he got baptized, something happened publicly. Okay? Okay, do you remember the story? If you go back, not all the, not all the Gospels record it. Okay? Do you remember? Yeah, yeah. John says he saw the, the spear coming down as a dove. Then what else happened that Mark records? There's a voice from heaven that says, this is my beloved son. And so is there a possibility that rumor spread quickly back home? Yeah, right? Almost as fast as texting when it's gossip or rumors. And so, so there's those possibilities. She knows, and by the way, we didn't say it. She knows Old Testament she knows who he is. Old Testament indicates that the Messiah would do what for people? Heal, help, provide for them food and sustenance. 
for people. So she's got some type of inkling that he is ready at this moment, able to do something. And so she's got this in her mind. My question is, okay, what does she have in mind? Because Jesus responds to her. She asks, she just says, hey, we're running out of wine. Yeah. And he's like, what? And, and this is where he's uh, said to be very rude. He's basically said, woman, what have I to do with you? Okay. And it sounds really harsh in our English. Is it that harsh? Is in the original, in the, if you were living back there and he said to you, whoops, that step just moved. He said to you, woman, what have I to do with you? Would you take that offensively if you lived back then? No, why not? It's what? Yeah, yeah. The word that he uses for this, the idea that this woman, when I say it, I make it sound so coarse, okay, and harsh. It shows up several times, and it's a term of respect and endearment. So don't, don't read it with the 2022 English concept. Okay, that he's, a, he's an adult kid being sassy, you know, living in their parents' basement, expecting her to do everything. Yeah, that's not the case. That's not the case. He is using in a, he's using in a public setting a very common type of a word or addressing dear lady, dear lady, dear woman. So it's a very respectful term. It doesn't come across again in our translation, but that's what it was that others use. And he says, what have I to do with you? This is, it shows up in other literatures back in that day, and it's an idiom. It's a Semitic idiom. We have idioms today. Yeah, there are idioms that, that are used that, that represent things. Uh, in our area, there's an idiom, out in the light, that most nobody understands. But you all understand it means... Okay, turn the light off. Okay, and so you have that... Uh, um, some of you understand, red up the room. Clean up the room. Clean up the room. Okay, so it, this is an idiom that was unique to their, their period and their, their culture, where what have I to do means this idea. It basically has this idea, we aren't thinking the same thing. We're not on the same page. Okay, and that's, a, that's like an idiom with us. We're not on the same page. What's that mean? Okay, we're, we're you know, you've you got something different in mind than what I have. And we understand that. And that's what it was. He's using an endearing term, a respectful term, and he says we're not on the same page. Which brings us back to this idea is what was Mary asking? What was she implying? Okay? She's got to be implying a whole lot more in her mind initially. She's got to have something a whole lot more because he says to her, she says, we're running out of wine. He says to her, what have I to do with you? She says to the servants, do whatever he says. So somewhere in there, he's contradicting what she, everything she had in mind, and still she's thinking, okay, there's some assistance going to be provided. So the bigger question is, what do you think Mary had in mind? Where he says to her, you know, we're not thinking the same thing, and then he adds, my hour is not yet come. What's that mean? What's it mean, my hour is not yet come? Okay, uh, one of the one of you, go ahead, pipe up again. Okay, okay. So it's it's not time for me to be doing everything that you expect me to do. What is she expecting him to do? Okay, what's that? Launching his he's launching it, but she's thinking. Yeah, she's thinking much more. So you have all this working together. And so the bottom line is, I think this is where she's gone. Reveal yourself as fully as Messiah, clearly. Just do this. Just declare right now you're Messiah. Declare the whole, you know, the whole reality of, of the situation. Remember, Jesus early in his ministry is not declaring himself in, in every situation. He is laying out truth. He is also speaking in what in what uh, literary device does he speak a lot of? Parables. And part of that is to keep some of the truth hidden from those who are antagonistic to the gospel. So at this point, he's starting to reveal, but not fully. And he doesn't even tell his disciples until later on in his ministry that he's going to die. Do you remember? 
It's, later, it's Matthew 16. It's the first time he's saying, hey, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. I'm going to suffer. And then I'll rise again. And their, their response, remember Peter's response? Please remember, we talked about it last Sunday. It was the message. Okay. Yeah, he didn't want it to happen. He said, you shall never. This shall never happen. Yeah. And so he isn't revealing everything at this point. And she's anticipating he probably could. Which, by the way, if you were in her sandals and you knew what you knew, is there any doubt that, is there any question why you might think, let's do it? Because even the disciples later on when they start realizing he's Messiah, what did they want him to set up right away? The kingdom, right? And they said, in fact, when you set up the kingdom, can we sit on your right and left hand? And so their anticipation is something, if you're, if you're this one, then let's do it. Let's get the entire show on the road. And so Jesus is just saying, not yet. But she still has confidence in him and turns to the servants and do whatever he tells you to do. Okay? Though he's not doing everything I want him to do, you still do whatever he says. So she's aware of his abilities to some degree and what he could do and, and expectation and how he will somehow, based on, maybe based on just their experiences, how helpful he's always been, how unselfish he's always been. Um, whatever it may be, she just tells him. And so Jesus goes on and he performs a simeon. Okay, just to finish out some of the story, and then what happens, he performs a simeon, is the word that's used. It's the word sign. And the part of it is when they're telling you what he does, they start giving you details that are very interesting details. They don't just say, hey, there were six pots. They tell you there were six stone pots. Why would they identify the stone pots? Because back in Bible days, your typical pot that you would use was going to be made out of Clay, clay. A stone pot was more elaborate for special occasions or for rituals with sacrifice related to them. So they were used in, in today in your house, uh, maybe not, it, it, a generation ago this was more so. You had your regular dishes and then you had the china, the china. Okay, the, the special ones that the kids aren't going to touch, it's only for company. Okay. And so these stone pots would be of that value. What, what other little detail do they give you? Okay, okay. they tell you the, the large pots. Well, what do they tell you about the large pots? How full are they? Okay. Yeah, they were empty, and then they're told to do what? Fill them? Okay, okay. Fill the potters. And verse 7, what detail do they tell you about how they filled them with water? They filled them to the brim. Why is that important? The writer wants to make sure you as an audience understand. You can't add anything more to it to change the substance. They were already filled to the top. So somebody might claim that what he did was just pour more in and dilute it. So he says that, that couldn't have happened because they were already filled to the Okay, what else does he tell you about the, the water pots? Does he give you any kind of gallonage? Okay. Do you have 20 or 30 gallons? Okay. Two or three firkins, okay, is, uh, is what you have filled to the brim. We already mentioned that. The firkins, the fir, is it firkins or firskins? Firkins. I put an extra accent. So we're talking about each one of them is about 20 gallons. What does that tell you? Woo! That's a lot of wine <laughs> that's going, that's taking place. Okay? So there must have been a big crowd there, or if it wasn't just a big crowd, they were a drinking crowd. Okay? So there's a good amount. Um, and so he gives us all this detail. But the one thing we don't know is, did other people know what happened? We don't know. We know that the governor finds out that it's good wine, but it doesn't, we don't know if the servants told him what happened. There's no other indication at that moment, okay, of, of things being spread, but we know that later on. But what's interesting is to keep in mind what this sign is. It's in the bigger picture, this whole story. Um, this new wine poured out, we, the master of ceremonies, he's impressed, and we go from a disaster to, wow, this family really has it together. And basically, who gets, the, who gets the lauded for this? You know, the family in the sense that the, the idea that he says that they have kept um, 
the best for last. And so, you know, the, the, the relatives, the friends, Mary, whoever, they get, they get some commendation here. So when we take the story, and remember, keeping this all in perspective, John, at the very end of the story, says, Jesus did these and many others, Simeon, so that they might believe. There are seven of them in the Gospel of John. And each one of them is unique to help bring people to hear the story and come to belief. So what does this story tell you about Jesus? What are the words, what does the things tell you? Well, can I, can I throw what some say that this does? That I don't think it has anything to do with it. But people, how do most people grab this story and say, well, this tells us we, we can go out and drink. Yeah, we're going to, you know, it's okay to make wine. You know, my grandmother loved this verse. Okay. So it was like, you know, the, it's not a miracle or story to advocate alcoholic beverages. That, that whole wine thing is involved, but really to promote wine. If he wanted to promote wine, there was different, better ways to promote wine. So that's not what the story's about. The story's not about promoting drinking. The story is promoting... Is it promoting go out and celebrate? See what I'm getting at? What is this story? I told you that there are seven of them. What are they involved? Who, what are they promoting? Or who are they designed to promote? Jesus. It's all about Jesus. The story is about Jesus. It's not about wine. It's about Jesus. Okay? And so according to verse 2, or chapter 2, verse 11, okay, and it says that this is the beginning of miracles he did, and why were they done? Look at verse 11. It tells you. There's two reasons in verse 11. Okay, one is to manifest his glory, to magnify him, and what was the second reason? So that the disciples would believe in him. Okay, the disciples. So this isn't about wine. This is about believing and being, being impressed with Jesus. The, the master of ceremonies was impressed with uh, wine. And the writer wants us to be impressed with Jesus. And so this is what it's all about. And as we already said, it's one of the seven miracles mentioned in chapter 20. Let's go a little bit further. So if you're impressed, what does it tell you about Jesus? It tells you you can do the impossible. Do you want to expand upon that a little bit? What else does it tell you about Jesus? What does it tell you about his ability over things? His power? It's absolute. Okay. Okay. Good. Good. Anything else? What does he have power over? Okay. Anything? Everything? Okay. Does he have power over elements? Does he have power over processes? Yeah, all creation. Every aspect of it. Every aspect of it. Yeah, yeah, okay. The seen and unseen. Absolutely. So it shows his power in that regard. Um, what else does it show you about him? I Say it again, Danielle. And how do you get that out of the story, that he cares about the little stuff? Sure. And, and does he care about our social standing with people? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, the needs of others. There was a need right there, and the need was not just physical, but it was also social. He cares about their responsibilities. His faithfulness. His faithfulness as a friend. It stands out. It's, it's an amazing story, a wonderful story, and right on the back of it, all of a sudden it says, oh, and Jesus went back to Jerusalem. After he came for the wedding, now he, the feast day came up. What feast day are they talking about? The Passover. He's headed back to Jerusalem. And so he goes back to Jerusalem. Now, if you look at the story as it unfolds here in this text, okay, it says, And the Jews' Passover was at hand. Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Then if you flip over, just keep this in mind, what you just read. Chapter 4 starts off with this, where it says, He left Judea and departed again into Galilee. Uh, I'm sorry. Um, 
That's not what I wanted right there. That's chapter chapter 5. Chapter 5 starts off, After this there was a feast of the Jews. Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there's at Jerusalem. There's another reference in there. that It's, it's mentioned a couple times. That Jesus goes to Jerusalem for the Passovers. What does that tell you about Jesus? Okay, he's devout. He's devout. We talked about this last week, that of all the services that they were told to go, that this was the service that the Galileans said that they have to do this once a year. So he's attending the services, even though it's inconvenient. For him to attend is a long distance. For him to, and he doesn't have family. He doesn't have, you know, the wife to do the cooking. He's going to have to travel, carry on, get there. And uh, even when he gets there, not, as, not all the time is he going to be popular. And when he goes to the temple, remember what we're going to hear in this story. The temple is ripe with corruption. It's, it's not the perfect place for worship. It's not what it's supposed to be. And yet Jesus doesn't um, abdicate temple worship. He doesn't give up on it just because there's some guys in charge who are doing it bad. So he still gets involved. Why does he do that? Why does he go even though there's hypocrisy there at the temple? Hmm? Anybody? Go ahead, try. Set an example. Excellent. Any other reasons? Why would he travel? Why would he do this? That's one good reason. There's got to be more. Okay. He's expecting change. He's hopeful. Yeah, to affect it. Excellent. Somebody else had was commenting? Okay. Okay. Oh, excellent. Hey, all good thoughts. All good thoughts. Okay. To try to bring about change, to, to distinguish himself, to set an example. The, the, a bottom line is, was he supposed to go to the temple? Who said Yeah, is it in the law? What did he come to do with the law? He came to fulfill it. Okay, so if we start right away, we just say, hey, listen, he's going, and he's loyal to the program. He's loyal enough that he says, hey, listen, I'm going to do it. I know that there's corruption there, but I'm going to do it differently. I'm going to try to change them. And so he goes and doesn't abdicate and say, oh, there's a bunch of hypocrites in there, you know, and I'm, not going to, I'm, not, I'm just not going to go. Well, his idea is if I go because I'm supposed to, because I've fulfilled the law, but I can also try to impact to get it right. Does this ever happen in modern day that people use the excuse for not going to church because there's hypocrites at church? Are they right? Yeah. I mean, could they accuse you and me of being hypocritical at times? Now, none of us want to say it out loud, but are we perfect? Do we blow it at times? Yeah, okay. So you lost your temper when you were driving, so I'm not going to go to church with you because you're a hypocrite. Okay, probably true. Lost temper while driving. But so, so we disobey the Word of God because we, there's hypocrites there. And by the way, the problem that we have at church is, is us, right? Why are we a problem? We're sinners. We're people. We're people. We're not perfect. We're not perfect. Do we struggle with doing worship? Uh, let, me, let me ask, do you, do you ever struggle when you're singing to really be focused at times when you're singing? Yes, no? Am I the only one that sometimes my mind is drifting? None of you ever do that. Okay, let me push you to the real test. When the preaching of the word is going on, and it lasts for 20 minutes in the introduction, okay. <laughs> Do your minds ever wander when, when we're sharing the word of God? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. When I'm preaching, my mind wanders, and I'm doing it. Okay, so it happens, and sometimes we're flawed in worship. Sometimes we don't come looking to be a blessing. Sometimes we want others to... Come on, come on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we struggle. We all do. We all, we all you know, at times, you know, none of you would ever do this, but man, when, my, when I told you our pastor where I grew up in, his prayers were long. And with head bowed and eyes closed. And long prayers. What do you do when you bow your head and close your eyes? And, uh, do, do, you ever, do you ever doze off? 
None of you. Um, thank you. Just you and me in this room. Nobody else in this room ever has that issue. Oh, when you snore while I'm praying, then that, yeah, so, okay, that, that's the worst of it. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. So, Mike, Mike, I'll throw something at you next time just to help you out. <laughs> so, we struggle with worship, and then the idea is, okay, do we, do we just abdicate the worship? We ought not. We should, you know, if you think there's hypocrites there, just go there. Go there and try to do what? Yeah, this is my snotty reply, Okay. If Alice were to say to me, I'm not going to, there's a bunch of hypocrites at church. Well, come and show us how to do it. You know, if you've got it all together, come and show the rest of us how to do it right. I know that's snotty, you know, and harsh. And I know I don't say it out loud, you know, that way. But in my mind, I sure am thinking it. Like, if you've got it all together, then you can And by the way, if... Getting close, Mike, you're going to be God for just a second. Don't let it go to your head. Okay, you're representing God. And here I am. I'm not going to go and get close to, to the Lord because he, the hypocrite, he's, he's in my way between God. Uh, oh, hey, what, what does this tell you? <laughs> Who is closer to God at this moment? The hypocrite is, okay? So it's just like, hey, you know, if, if that's what's going to keep you from the Lord, at least that guy's still closer. Um, so spiritual people participate in design worship, corporate worship, even though it's physically inconvenient, even though they're, they might be more spiritual than the others there. You know, they might be more spiritual. This has only happened once in the, in the decades that I've been here. Only once. Have I had a family come and tell me, we're leaving this church and we're going to find spiritual people to worship with? And it was like, whoa. I said, um, what do you mean? The people, the people in the church, there's, there's, not an, there, there's not enough spiritual people, mature people. There's a lot, of, a lot of baby Christians. Frankly, I'm glad we have baby Christians. Because what does that tell us? Yeah, we're, we're reaching out, we're trying to bring in people, and, yeah, what's that? We're trying to learn, we're trying to learn. But that was the only time that's ever happened, and that still has never gone away in my mind, that, because my thought was, you can think that, but you shouldn't, you shouldn't say that, you know, it doesn't sound good. But um, anyway, even though there may be some hypocrisy, even though there may be some problems in the actual worship, spiritual people get involved. So the problems in the temple that you know of, as we just recall the story, what were the problems in the temple? The money changers? Okay. Is it okay to have animals in the temple? What's that? You have to have animals for the sacrifice. So animals are coming trans... Yeah, they're, yeah, they're going to be tromping through, right? So there's going to be animals there. So that's not the problem, except for animals usually, yeah, they do their business, they smell, they make noise, but the, that's part of this, the, the whole setup. Um, what, what else? You said the money changers. What else was there in the temple? Any other, any other stuff that was going on? Is that it? They were what? Okay, the pricing of the animals is really, really critical in the whole story. So the, the population, just to give you background, the general population of Jerusalem is guesstimates were like 50,000, maybe 100,000. There wasn't any real census taken from the days of Jesus uh, to give us an exact figure. There are figures recorded in history, but we don't know how reliable they are. So the guesstimates with what they have is 50 to 100,000. I know that that's a big number change, but that's basically what you're going to find. You will find some writers saying maybe 30,000, about the size of Lebanon. Then you'll have others that say there was 250,000. And so you have a variety, but the most say, okay, right around 50 to 100,000. Then you have some writers like Josephus that said we would get 2.5 million visitors that would show up. He's the only one that gets it that big. And Josephus, typically, he's a Jewish writer, so who does he usually put in in really good light? Jews and Jewish festivities and things like that. So um, we don't know. But if there was a half a million that came from around the world that came, that's still a lot of people. Yes, no? 500,000 people moving in for a week. What would that do to our town? 
Okay, okay, so you, you, got a, you got a, all of a sudden this influx of people. And when they came, and, and again, they're coming Passover weekend. And so they come, and they're coming to make sacrifices, and they're coming to pay their temple tax. They had to pay an annual tax to the temple. And so if you are traveling from, let, let's set up a scenario, you're traveling from Ohio to here. And remember, between here and Ohio, you don't, everybody has something unique to their community. They have their own currency. There wasn't, a, there wasn't a common currency necessarily. Or as the empire was expanding, there might be a common coin that could be used in international trade, but you still had the local coins. And so if you showed up with the international coin, what started happening? The local authorities said, we're not taking your international coin. You've got to use Hebrew coins because this is Hebrew worship. And so you have these influx of people, and, and typically, you're, what kind of animal are you supposed to sacrifice? What, what about the lamb? Perfect. Not a, not a mar. Okay, so if you're traveling from Ohio, and you're bringing the lamb with you, what do you what's the risk? Injury, whatever. By the time it gets here, it may kind of look like what? Yeah, yeah. it might look like a Charlie Brown Christmas tree sheep, Okay. <laughs> And so it's wore out. It could be injured. So what, what might be your option? What, what, what might you have planned? I'm just going to buy a lamb there. Okay? And so they traveled. They brought it. And for a long time, you know, it, there wasn't an issue until this period of time. In this period of time, all of a sudden, the, the people in charge, they saw that with a bigger amount of pilgrims coming that were spread all over. Remember, the temple is, isn't that old. The temple had been gone for, for many generations. There was no temple. And then it just recently has gotten rebuilt and then remodified. And under Herod, they've really expanded the temple. And so the Herod's project, as you see in the story, it's starting, it's starting to, you know, it's been in a process for 40-some years already by the time Jesus comes on the scene, and they're expanding it. And the reason they're doing it is the Sadducees who were in charge of the temple, they decided that what they're going to do is um, they're going, you're, you're coming from Ohio, you're going to buy a lamb. Well, well, if you're willing to come that distance and buy a lamb, we're going to pre... Um, you know, you have these things that, you know, inspected by number, you know, whatever. So you got a pre-approved lamb. This one for sure, you know, we'll accept for sacrifice because, you know, my son has already pre-approved it. So what can I do with, with you coming from Ohio? What can I do with that price of the pre-approved lamb? I can make it whatever I want. And if you say, well, I'm going to buy one outside the city walls... I might do what if I'm in charge? It's not good enough. I have to inspect your lamb. And I can find a flaw in your lamb. But the pre-approved lamb, it, it'll pass. So what do you call this type of business that you only buy from them? Robbery. Robbery. <laughs> the business term. Monopoly. Okay, so they created a monopoly on that, and uh, then they start. Then they they put this practice in place. We'll only accept Hebrew coins, no other coins. So you got to change your Ohio money into Lebanon County money, and you're at our mercies. And at this time of the year, when there's more demand, what happens to prices? They go up. And so typically what they did is they started char- charging up to 12% of the value of the coin. That's a good amount of money coming off of your buying power. And for the lambs, they started charging at that time, Passover, five to six times the normal amount. Okay? So this was all, we, we would call these type of people besides robbers, what do they call this people that start selling wood after a hurricane and the exorbitant prices? What? what Scalping, scalping, is that the term? Okay, scalping, whatever. And so that's exactly what's happening. They're doing it. And so if you're coming from a distance, you know, what do you know? I'm going to get ripped off. What do I do about it? I can't. I don't, I don't have any, any choice. So I'm paying all these exorbitant prices. And so what, what happened is the leadership of the temple... It came to be more about making money than helping people to worship.
which, by the way, does that ever happen in churches today? Do some church leaders, it's more about money. Money, money, money. Okay. And so what happened is these people, with the expansion of crowds, they needed to expand the temple. And Herod was building the temple. And you see up at the top part, it's, it, that's that one big section with two little squares. That's the court of the Gentiles. It wrapped around the sides, and then it came all the way down to this bottom side, court of the Gentiles. And there's a little wall that's stuck up partly through. The Gentiles couldn't go beyond that little wall. The ladies could go inside, the Gentile, Jewish ladies could go inside, and only the men could go a little bit farther in. That's the wall of partitions that Ephesians 2 talks about that Jesus broke down between the Jews and the Gentiles. And so that whole big courtyard was designed because a lot of people, there's a lot of Gentiles coming in that are proselytizing or even foreign Jews coming into the area, and that's where they could. And, and by the way, what did God say? Do, do you remember Romans ten thirteen? For blank, 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 shall call upon the name of the Lord. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord. That's an Old Testament quote. Okay, that's found in the Old Testament. God intended the Jews to be a what to the world? To a light. He talked about them being a light. That they're to be a witness to the entire world. So they were to be bringing Gentiles to worship. Converting them to their religious, you know, proselytizing to Judaism. And so don't be mistaken. Evangelism wasn't unique just to our day. The uniqueness is we have the Spirit, we have, uh, you know, within us and Jesus' assistance, I'll go with you at all times. But they were to be doing that in the Old Testament. You got Jonah, you got others. And so by the time of the New Testament, they were more concerned about making money than they were being evangelistic. And so they took the area of the court that <clears throat> they could control better well, we'll just take the court of the Gentiles. And so that whole thing came filled with all these animals and uh, the pilgrims coming in. Now they have to buy and sell. They have the money changers who were never intended to be there, but all of a sudden they've set up business. And uh, basically, you know, there's going to be a disruption to anybody coming through because of all the noise of haggling and, and money rates. And then on top of the Gentiles, you know, if you're a Gentile, you're back then... Um, and you want to have a place where you can pray, and it's limited to the foyer. You can't come in the center party, but you can only be in the foyer. But the problem in the foyer, it's filled with animals and people yelling. How does that affect your praying? It's hard to pray. It's hard to pray. And then if you want to kneel down, you got to make sure... Yeah, you're not kneeling in you know, the dung or... Ugh. Okay, and so it's just, it's just plain hard. It's just really hard worship. And so Jesus, he, he reacts. Okay, take the story and just walk through. It's, what does Jesus, what does he make? The passage is going to give us little things. Okay, what does Jesus make in order to... Where do you have that? Verse 15. What's it say? He made himself a... A scourge or a whip of small cords. What does that tell you uh, about him? Was he serious? Okay, so he makes a whip, okay? And so he makes it out of the rope lying around. And there would be stuff there because he got cages and animals that cages were tied up and stuff like that. And then what does he do? What does he physically do? He chases, chases, what is the passage? Chases them all, chases them all out. Question that you have is, who's the them? Okay. Okay, he's chasing the merchants out, okay? The merchants and the people who are doing the huckstering. What else does he chase out? Okay, he's chasing out some of the animals out of this area. He gets rid of the animals that have been pre-approved, okay? So he's got them going out, and he's chased out the oxen, <clears throat> So even if you're supposed to be bringing a lamb in for worship, you're not supposed to have the whole flock in there. Okay, if you come from the city, you're traveling, you're not supposed to bring your entire flock in. You're supposed to park them somewhere outside. You're supposed to bring one lamb in. Why would that make sense? The volume of people, the volume of lambs, the idea. This is, this is supposed to be a place of 
worship. Do you remember how, how in the Old Testament, even the tabernacle, and it wasn't totally in vogue, but typically in worship, what did God tell people to do with their shoes? Take their shoes off. Why? It's a holy place. So, you know, this is, you know, and we're not, please, I'm not pretending we're the temple. Not at all. But still, are there certain things appropriate or inappropriate in a public setting for worship? Yes, no? Yeah, you just come in and say, hey, out of respect and what's happening here, we don't bring in da-da-da-da-da-da. And so, uh, what other physical action did Jesus take? What else did he do? He overturns the tables, okay, and he pours out their money over through their tables. Okay, why did he do it? <coughs> He's upset. <coughs> Any other reasons? Go ahead, Jeremy. Yeah. Is this a Robin Hood act? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Why, why do you think? Take the big picture. Why did he do it? It's taking away from worship. Taking away from worship. Here, let me, let me throw you. We, we know this from Psalm chapter 20. Uh, it should be 22, I think. I think I have that wrong. No, it is too. Okay. It's repeated. It's repeated in Psalm 69. <coughs> and they, they quote it later. The zeal of thine house has eaten me up. So Jesus is very fired up. He's very excited. This is a messianic psalm. Okay, just follow along here for just a couple minutes. It's a messianic psalm that's predicting what's happening. And so what we're finding out is that Jesus is starting to present himself in a public sense. Mary had just said, you know, present yourself. Now what does Jesus do? In a veiled way, he's going to reveal himself. The whole story wraps up. He reveals himself. He even says at the very end, tear down this temple and in three days I'll build it up. What's he referring to? Yeah, so he's giving a veiled revelation of himself. And so the other, just let me finish with these two verses. This is a messianic prophecy. I will come, he says, suddenly to the temple. Behold, he shall come. He will sit as a refiner, a purifier. He shall purify the sons of Levi and purge the gold and the silver that they may offer. Now, I understand this is a kingdom one. I understand. Is there also a secondary, a lesser application? Did he come in suddenly to the temple and start to clean up the priests and what they were doing. Yes, he did. Did he come after his messenger had been on the scene? John the Baptist. Yeah, John the Baptist, chapter 1. So he keep the keepers of the house, and he's getting the worship underway. Another one, there's holiness in the Lord, and there shall be no more Canaanite. It's interesting, the term that he uses in the Hebrew of Canaanite there, that when you see this, the Messiah controlling the temple, the Canaanite refers to traitors. Not traitors, but traitors, that they're going to be purged out. So what Jesus basically does, he comes in and he is in a veiled sense saying, this is, yeah. And whose house does he declare this is? Not God. Okay. I'm, I'm looking for one term. He does. It does. You're right. But what term does he use? My father's house. He's declaring himself in a veiled sense. And they're going to ask him, we'll pick up next week, who gave you the authority? Okay, he's got it all. Okay, let's pick up next week, right in the middle of that. There's some stuff here that are, that's still really, really insightful. Thanks for listening.